Immigrants that come here to work in agriculture have never stopped being farmers. While they might be working on someone else's farm, their sense of themselves is that they are farmers. They have the knowledge to grow food. They have the knowledge in particular to grow food in a way that we see as ecologically sustainable. I'm Tanya Kurson, and this is Real Food Reads, the book club and podcast from Real Food Media. Each month, we feature one of our favorite books on the intersection of food, politics, and culture, and invite the authors to share their unique insights. Picture an American farmer. What's the first thing that comes to mind? If it's a white male farmer in overalls, that's probably because this image of farming appears pretty much everywhere, from billboards to movies to food packaging. Indeed, who gets to be the face of farming and who is given privileged access to land and resources has been tied to whiteness since settler colonialism and the exploitation of enslaved people and immigrant labor to generate wealth from the land for generations. In today's episode, we'll look at a group of farmers that is almost invisible in representations of rural America, immigrant farmers. While immigrant farm workers receive a fair amount of media attention, Immigrants who own and operate their own farms are an overlooked, and according to my guest today, flourishing group of farmers. Laura Ann Minkoff-Zern is an associate professor in the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies and affiliated in the Department of Geography at Syracuse University. Dr. Minkoff-Zern's research and teaching explores the interactions between food and racial justice, labor movements, and transnational environmental and agricultural policy. Her new book is The New American Farmer, Immigration, Race, and the Struggle for Sustainability. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Can you speak a little bit to this mythology of the white man in overalls as the dominant image of American farming and, and how that shows up in your research? It's a really good starting point to have this conversation. Um, the idea of kind of the white male farmer goes back um, really to, you know, Jeffersonian times, um, and a particular image of a landowner, and that that landowner does the primary labor to produce food in this very, you know, what's become a very idealized notion of a farmer. You know, it's been continued through current day agrarian writers like Wendell Berry, you know, who present us with this image of of agriculture um, that's not only kind of romantic in terms of what that work entails, but in terms of who does the majority of that work. And as we know, we've had slaves and then followed by generations of different kinds of immigrants doing so much of the work in U.S. agriculture and so much of the sweat labor while white farm owners, you know, have benefited economically as the landowners and the business owners. Um, and that's not to say that there haven't been white farmers and aren't white farmers that are doing a tremendous amount of labor. But I think that we we still can very easily conflate that image of a white farmer with who's doing the work to produce our food in the United States. Right. And, you know, I think that's such a big part of your book is, you know, this idea of who gets to be a farmer and who has to be or is kept in the position of a farm worker. What it comes down to is who gets the privilege to to be in that position of what you know becomes a position of power on a farm. Um, and so historically, we've had white farm owners, um, and that's continued as that equity gets passed down to generations. While the majority of the people doing the work today on U.S. farms are immigrants, they largely don't have the opportunity to purchase farms 
to have decision-making power on farms and to really be seen as the face of agriculture, certainly not in terms of how we make policy decisions. But, you know, as I write about in the book, I do think that that's changing slowly. Mm -hmm. Um, And the farmers that are making that change and kind of succeeding farming um, or owning their own farms against a lot of challenges and against all odds are who I wanted to highlight in the story. I wanted to get a sense from you of of who immigrant farmers are in the U.S. Um, where do they mostly come from and where are they farming? Sure. I can speak to it in two ways. One is who I focused on in my own research. And one is what I think the bigger picture, which is broader than my own research. So I specifically focused on immigrants that were starting as farm workers and transitioning to owning their own farm. So I really wanted to see what that transition looked like from a worker to an owner. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, you know, the population that I interview looks a lot like a farm worker population. So they tend to be a lot from Southern Mexico, many from indigenous communities in Southern Mexico. And it really, the range in ages was pretty large, again, because some of the people I talked to, you know, had been farming for 30 years. So they had come in the early 80s, worked in, you know, berries, gone through the process of getting naturalized as a citizen through policy in the 1980s. And those are older farmers. There were others that had just come to the U.S. five years ago and Mm -hmm. were still working in the fields as they're starting their own farms. So for me, the picture varied a lot of who immigrant farmers were. They all came from farming backgrounds in Mexico and some in Central America. They came with a lot of agricultural knowledge, which is a big focus of the book. Can you share an emblematic story maybe of an immigrant farmer who transitioned from being an employee on a farm to being a farm owner? So obviously there's a wide range of experiences there, but just to give us a sense of what that trajectory can look like. Yeah, there's a one farming family that I was able to to follow for quite a while. They identify as Mixteco from Oaxaca, a young family, you know, a husband and wife who were working in, you know, industrial agriculture in the Salinas Valley, who started taking classes at ALBA, the Agriculture Land Based and Training Association in Salinas. They came here as immigrants, um, have three young children here, you know, and both the parents are working consistently, very challenging jobs in agriculture as farm workers. But they started to see that if they kept working as farm workers, that they weren't going to increase their wages, things were going to stay the same for them. And, you know, there are some of the workers that I talked to that started to think about owning their own farms through kind of a training program. And, and so while they both had to maintain their jobs on farms during the day, they were able to slowly start, you know, a mixed fruit and vegetable farm, they rented land, they were both working after work, like a double shift with young kids. Um, until eventually the male partner was able to quit his day job and run the farm. Um, so while it's been really challenging, you know, and they're certainly not getting rich in doing this, I've been able to really observe the ways that it's affected their children, the ways that their children have, as they've gotten older, taken more of a role in supporting the farm. Um, and, you know, the ways that the parents have been able to feed their kids differently and feed their community mm. differently and start to feel like they were able to, you know, have something they could really give their kids, not just a low wage job and getting by. So, you know, they're one of the farmers I've been, I've been able to follow for a while. And it's been really wonderful to see their success. Right. That's, that's wonderful. And so how significant is this in terms of 
quality of life and just the well-being for this family. Obviously, so much sacrifice there um, that is a part of so many immigrant stories of, you know, working that double shift, trying to, you know, create a better life for their children. What is the qualitative difference in the day-to-day well-being from, you know, being a farm worker or being the children of farm workers to having your own farm? Yeah, well, and that's, I'd say people have asked me that question in different ways, you know, and I think usually they ask that question like, well, why would you go from working as a farm worker all day to like farming in the evening? You know, it's kind of like, (laughs) isn't that the same thing? Well, and people would ask Mm. it in the context of, I don't really believe people are doing that. That doesn't really make any Mm. sense. And Mm. and that it's just too hard. And Mm. what I really saw, especially those when they were maintaining their day job as farm workers, which is you know, during the day, they're like a cog in a wheel, largely in industrial agriculture. They do the same job right. all day long. They don't get to make decisions. They don't decide what's planted. They don't get to feed their families with what they're growing. I mean, it's not that people mm-hmm. don't enjoy farm work. Many of them do. It's very different than owning your own farm or than being part of the mm-hmm. farm um management, right? Where you actually get to decide what you're going to grow. You get to decide how you're going to grow it. I mean, within reason, right? For the market, um, you get to prioritize your family's health. You get to teach your children about that process and that connection to the land that you were taught. And I think that's such an important point of pride for people that grow up in agriculture in another country as they come here um, to work and they're treated like they don't know anything and they're not really respected for the knowledge that they're bringing to the fields. Um, they're still using their knowledge every day. And it's only when they actually get access to land that they can start making real decisions. Um, you know, for many of them, they talked a lot about what this meant to teach their kids to farm. It doesn't mean that they wanted their kids to be a farmer by profession. I mean, they they know firsthand how incredibly difficult it is. But they want their kids to know, like some of them said, you know what, if if things don't work out for this or that, they know how to feed themselves, right? And they know these important skills that I was taught and they know their culture, right? It's another way that they're passing on their culture and their language um, and an identity for them. One of the things I just, I want to highlight from, you know, what you just said is kind of this idea of unskilled labor. Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh, you're just, you know, harvesting lettuce all day or berries and um, that there's no skill involved in that. When we know, you know, you just need to to search on, on YouTube or something for, you know, berry picking or, <laughs> and you see like the tremendous speed and skill that's involved in that. But mm-hmm. also what you're saying speaks to like the larger um, skill set and body of knowledge that many of these immigrant farm workers have from having grown up on a farm. And really, it sounds like what you're saying, like really wanting to put that to use and also have their broad skills and, and knowledge valued, you know, as, as we all do. Yeah. That's actually what inspired me to, to start doing this research was um, after I had spent some time working on farms um, and I found that I'm terrible at farming. It's like not my skill set at all um, and gave me so much respect for everyone involved in growing food. You know, but I also just started to see, cause I, I spoke Spanish and I had experience in Central America and I started to really 
understand pretty quickly that the people that I was working with in the fields, they were farmers. Um, and I continue to see this in my research is that immigrants that come here to work in agriculture have never stopped being farmers, right? They identify as farmers. And while they might be working on someone else's farm, their sense of themselves is that they are farmers. Um, and so that's what's been so important about this research is to highlight the fact that field workers are actually farmers themselves, that they have the knowledge to grow food, that they have the knowledge in particular to grow food in a way that we see as, you know, ecologically sustainable. They come largely from backgrounds where they've been growing diverse fruits and vegetables, um, and they've been growing in a way that we, you know, while it might not be certified organic, tends to use um, less agrochemicals. And, you know, a lot of the things we're looking for in our food system today from the sustainability standpoint and the alternative food system standpoint are actually skills and knowledge that farm workers have, right? And so we they're so easily overlooked as just workers and just as laboring bodies. But, you know, what I think the interviews really highlight is that they're knowledgeable and they're farmers and they're skilled and there's no such thing as an unskilled farm worker. You also mentioned um, ALBA, which is the Agriculture and Land-Based Training Association. Can you tell me a little bit about you know, what ALBA does? Um, I believe they provide support for immigrant farm workers and do farmer incubation. But how significant is it to have an organization like ALBA in the area to support farm workers on this journey to farming their own land? And also, how common is it? Yeah, I did research in regions where farmers both had a training association like ALBA, and I'll, I can name a few others, and also where farmers did not have that type of support network. And, um, you know, I do think having an actual institution mm-hmm. or organization which supports farmers with things such as business training. So they have the skills to grow the food. They know about farming, but they don't really know how to run a business in the United States. Things like marketing, how to file their taxes, um, mm-hmm. how to apply for grants, right? And they also don't have the language skills. So many of them only speak Spanish. Some of them Spanish the second language. Some of them don't have formal education, um, even you know in their home countries. So to have that type of business education is really crucial. Mm-hmm. So organizations like ALBA, um, there's another organization in Washington State called Viva Farms. And then in mm-hmm. New York, the Green Market Program that organizes the farmer's market was doing some similar kind of training. And there's a few others throughout the country. And so these incubators, it's also really significant that they be focused on immigrant farmers because immigrant farmers' needs mm-hmm. are really, really different than other beginning farmers, right? I mean, there's places okay. yeah. that have farm incubation programs Um, But if they're not focused on an immigrant population, they're just not going to meet the needs and the program's not going to be able to really help um, those farmers because their needs are just really different than people with a U.S.-based education. So what's really significant about these organizations, they're specifically working with farm workers um, and they're specifically trying to bridge this gap between farm labor and farm owner and figuring out what those farmers need. And it's not a, you know, a perfect process, obviously, um, but at the same time, these organizations are stepping in and doing a lot of really important work that's not being done by state and local government. Yeah. You know, it, it, these are gaps being left by agencies like the United States Department of Agriculture. Yeah. I mean, and to that point, I actually met an immigrant farmer in southern Minnesota a few months ago, who I think maybe was even part of your research. And he was talking about the challenges of climate change and 
how it's actually very difficult to get any support, for example, from the public universities or, or state extension services to troubleshoot problems on his farm. Is there like a huge blind spot in our public institutions, you know, land grant universities, you know, USDA, state extension services, um, in providing services to, well, to farmers of color, but immigrant farmers in particular? Yeah, I mean, there absolutely is um, from the federal USDA on down. And, you know, most of the time when I called regional and local USDA offices in places where I was doing interviews and where there was a robust immigrant farming community, and I'd call and say, could I talk to someone in your office that's working with immigrant farmers? And almost immediately the reaction would be, well, we don't work with farm workers in this office. And I'd say, well, actually, I'm talking about immigrant farmers because I've been interviewing them. And there was just a total mm-hmm. unawareness that they even existed in these regions. Wow. That happened yeah. in California. It happened in Virginia. You know, and eventually I'd sit down with people and hear, you know, a little bit about their knowledge about the community, but their initial reaction was always that, you know, we don't work with farm workers. And that just speaks to the challenges that immigrant farmers face if they go into an office, that they're not identified as farmers. They're seen as farm workers. They're seen as workers. And the same thing at the markets, mm-hmm. right? You might, you know, mm-hmm. a, a typical customer might go to a farmer's market and see a farm owner that is, you know, an immigrant that is Latino and just assume it's a farm worker, not assume that it's the mm-hmm. owner, especially if they don't speak English. Um, And so that happens to them constantly. So it's really hard to get understood when they do kind of get to the point of feeling like they're ready to connect more with the other, the rest of the farming community when they do feel comfortable going to an office, if they feel comfortable going into a federal, you know, USDA office. You know, I did, I talked to one farmer in California who's relatively successful organic farmer, Latina has been in the U S for, you know, over two decades And when I asked her about if she worked with the USDA, do you apply for any grants or loans or, you know, the types of things that other farmers are are using as resources to help get started? And, you know, she said, well, when you go into the office of the USDA, um, and she said she had gone, you know, and she said to me, they don't speak their language, your language, and they don't want to speak your Mm -hmm. language. She means that literally and figuratively, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, they don't speak Spanish And, you know, they also don't want to understand me. They think of me as a liability and they want me to go away. And I mean, it's standard um, institutional discrimination, you know, and also speaking to kind of what that institutional discrimination looks like. The USDA has has actually dealt with a Hispanic farmer and rancher claim process really similar to the Pigford lawsuit for African-American farmers. Right. And just to just to define that real quick. um, So I I think some, you know, a lot of food activists are familiar with the Pigford case Mm -hmm. in the 1990s where black farmers sued the U.S. Department of Agriculture for discrimination. And what you're referring to now is is another lawsuit filed against the USDA following the Pigford case um, by Hispanic farmers and ranchers. Mm hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's less well known. And they were actually lumped in with female farmers, right? It's actually okay. it's actually called the um, Hispanic and women farmers and ranchers okay. um, claim suit. Okay. Um, but it was just based on a very small period of time in 1981 to 2000 when farmers were saying that they had applied for farm loan assistance and that there was explicit discrimination, which the USDA admitted to and said, okay, well, you can apply through a claims process. And this was mm-hmm. several years ago um, that the claims process started. So you would have to have been farming between 81 and 2000. You would have had to okay. know about it in 2012, which was actually during the time that I was doing some of this research. And when I 
inquired about it in USD offices. And I said, well, how are you reaching out so people know about this? And they'd say, well, there's a flyer here in the office, right? So then they also assumed that people were coming into their office today to find out um, about the lawsuit, which was, you know, um, problematic. And then actually at the end of the whole process, less than 10% of the claims were seen as legitimate. And one of, I, I find really ironically, is one of the reasons that was stated is that people didn't fill out the paperwork properly. As I talk about in the book, that's one of the huge barriers of immigrant farmers and Spanish-speaking farmers that come here with, you know, limited formal education is paperwork. I mean, it's one of the main things people talk about is the mm-hmm. struggle for them to kind of get through the standard bureaucracy of farming in the U.S., whether that's, you know, getting a business loan or whether that's applying to be selling in a market or organic farming paperwork. And so I think it's really quite ironic that one of the reasons the farmers weren't able to get you know, successfully claim the money that they deserved is because of paperwork. Yeah. So to summarize, I guess, in case, you know, people are wondering, the settlement of these lawsuits against the USDA did not successfully dismantle racism within that organization. (laughs) (laughs) This is something we talk a lot about, right, is sort of dismantling racism in the food system. And I think sometimes it can feel like kind of an abstract conversation of course sometimes you know we we talk about things like okay well hiring practices right like it am i correct to assume that majority of usda employees are either white or most likely not from immigrant backgrounds (laughs) i mean it's certainly yes right it certainly seems that way and i think that there is documentation of that and i think so while vilsack who was the head of the usda under obama There were a lot of issues during that time period as well as this time period currently. He did specifically try and address those hiring practices. He actually made a statement that he wanted this to be, you know, the civil rights era for the United States Department of Agriculture. Um, Mm. And I'm I'm critical of what actually was accomplished during that time based on what people told Mm me. You know, it's very different than kind of this moment that we're in when we're explicitly going in the other direction. So um, what I found was, you know, when I was looking up resources on the USDA website before Trump was elected, you know, there was increasingly more Spanish language resources. They weren't perfect. They were very difficult to find. They weren't streamlined. It depends on the state. But what actually happened within, you know, the first year of this administration um, is that many of those resources just disappeared. And Mm -hmm. you can find them if you go into the archived versions of the USDA website, but they actually took off the Spanish language resources that were starting to build up there. So I think what we see is an explicit move in the opposite direction. I think we're unfortunately in a moment of going backwards. Mm. One demographic trend that seems pretty significant is the huge number of farmers over the age of 55 that will be retiring in the next decade. You talk about in the book, the out-migration of white young people from rural communities, and especially in the South, and immigrant farmers stepping in to fill that gap, Mm -hmm. which we actually need, right? Otherwise, who's going to grow our food? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really an important question right now, and what the USDA calls traditional farmers, white farmers, um, as they they retire, um, their children don't want to farm economically just such a precarious profession, even for people that inherit farms. Kids don't want to take on this work if they have the access to education and to get off the farm they do for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so what we have is farmers retiring and selling farms 
And in many cases, you know, the people in the region that know how to farm and have the skills but don't have the money to buy the farm are the farm workers. And so I think it's a really important demographic shift to be paying attention to and really to be supporting. Structurally, mm-hmm. we need to be looking at who's going to be the next generation of farmers. What we also know is typically that, you know, white college-educated farmers that tend to be a bit more idealistic, you know, while some of them really stick in it for the long run, many of them don't, right? Because they have other options and they don't have to. And this is difficult. And as you mentioned, climate change is making it more difficult, especially for people willing to do this work that that want to be, you know, running farms. Um, I think there need to be more sustained structural ways to, to support them to do it. So you talk about how immigrant farmers, for the most part, you mentioned, um, tend to gravitate towards fruit and vegetable production. Um, so as opposed to, you know, corn and soy, you know, large scale chemical intensive commodities and more sustainable production practices. So what are the different factors that inform these choices? I, I would ask specifically, well, why is it that you are growing fruits and vegetables and selling at the farmer's market? To one farmer asked, well, why don't you just grow strawberries like everybody else around here? And I got some really amazing answers, you know, and um, was along the lines of those farmers do it for the money and I do it because I love it. Um, And while it's not always that simple, farmers I interview were still doing it for the money. It's still a business. Um, They're still trying to survive and do the best for their families as they can. You know, for them, it's also there's something cultural about it. Um, And I talk about the sense of kind of recreating home being able to pass that down for their, to their family, being able to change their quality of life in this very concrete way. You know, and the dream for them, like most farmers, to own, you know, a house on the same property that they're growing, to have their family fed mm-hmm. from their farm. Um, but I guess what I really see with these farmers is that that really all comes first to them. If they can't feed their family, if they can't grow in a way that reflects the ways that they grew in some ways at home, um, you know, those are the driving reasons why they're doing it. And if they can make a living at it, right, I mean, that's what they want as well. But there's this other driving factor. It's not just a business for them. Then I would also say, you know, there's another driver for being a diverse producer, which is that, you know, they have very low capital inputs, money to invest in their farm. You know, you can grow a lot on a small plot of land that you're renting and be able to sell it directly to a farmer's market. You need less money Mm -hmm. to do that type of thing than, say, run a large scale dairy or plant, you know, acres and acres of industrial fruit production or, you know, strawberries. So it's a low input system in a lot of ways relative to other forms of farming. Selling directly is also what's familiar to them, selling at a farmer's market, selling to their community um, is, again, you know, it's how they grew up farming. Yeah. And so speaking of strawberries, because you've brought up strawberries a couple of times, um, and it's sort of this counter example, almost you, you talk about in the book as, you know, very chemical intensive monocultural production. Um, it's also majority immigrant farmers who are growing those. So and you also mentioned that these are primarily second and, and third generation immigrants. So my question is, you know, as immigrant-owned and operated farms become more established, is there, do you think, a sustained commitment to maintaining them as small, local, diverse farms using mainly family labor, selling to the farmer's market? Or is there a tendency for these farms to grow and become more industrialized and rely more on external labor and inputs? Right. And that's a really 
important question, right? Is like, what is the future of all of this? And does it, does right. it matter in the long run? Yeah. And what I saw is they really are threatened in terms of being able to sustain the way that they're growing. Um, markets for direct to farmer's market and restaurants are already really saturated in places um, like California and even Washington State. And so it's limited how much they can make and and how big the market is for the type of work that they're doing, the type of farming that they're doing. And they don't typically have the same connections that white farmers do, that farmers with better marketing practices and skills do. So I've seen some farmers start with a really diverse you know, way of growing and then after a few years, say, have to just go down to two crops because they just couldn't make it in that very competitive you know, market. So I think it's right. it's really tough, and I think a lot of it depends on how we shift our purchasing practices, right? I think institutional buyers mm-hmm. need to be a more open pathway for farmers. And, and again, the problem is um, they're small. They're really small, and so their market is really limited. I think it's a matter of us expanding things like food hubs, right, and other ways mm-hmm. of – helping small farmers scale up in their selling abilities, right, to say institutions and grocery stores and places that should be supporting small farmers, but don't because of the way our industrial food system is set up. And so, you know, I'd say unless we really restructure the food system, which, you know, I hope we're in a moment of really reflecting on that and trying to make these shifts, Mm -hmm. especially with the crisis of COVID and and all these institutions (laughs) shutting down, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd say it's going to, it's tough. It's really tough. I guess I'm hopeful right now that people are becoming more aware of the vulnerabilities of our supply chain, that people that haven't thought about local food or small-scale farming are increasingly becoming aware as they realize how vulnerable we all are to this large-scale supply chain, you know, economies Mm -hmm. of scale system that we've built. But then at the same time, we need to focus in on, you know, on farmers that are more vulnerable, on immigrant farmers, on farmers of color and how to support them specifically. I did want to ask you about, um, you know, you've mentioned the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, I know you work on a lot of different issues related to small farmers and farm workers. How is the pandemic affecting some of these most vulnerable folks, you know, trying to make a living from agriculture during this crisis? Yeah. And I mean, I think what we've seen is you know, within the food system, there's been a real awareness to how vulnerable workers are right now, that Mm -hmm. while workers are deemed very much essential from kind of field workers to processing plants to grocery store workers, that they're not being given the protections that they need. And I think a lot of this comes back to them being, you know, racialized low-wage workers that just have never been prioritized Mm -hmm. in our current market system. Undocumented people, they also don't get access to stimulus checks, they aren't going to have unemployment if they lose their job um, because, you know, the meat processing plant closed. You know, they don't have social safety nets right now. And, you know, that's the same for immigrant farmers, but I think we're seeing it on a very large scale for farm workers and, you know, meat processing workers thinking about how they're going to cope with something like increased poverty and food insecurity, you know, while they're being deemed essential, right, and and not being given protections. It's, it's a huge problem. And, you know, I think we need some big structural solutions to these problems, not just in this immediate moment of crisis, but really moving forward, right? The irony of calling workers right. essential and then still treating them like they're somehow illegal is, is I think, really, really waking some people up to this problem right now. So why is it important for people who are involved in the quote unquote food movement 
you know, folks actively working to promote healthy, fair, sustainable food to understand the reality of immigrant farmers and advocate for them and, you know, actively include their their interests and their voices in the movement. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's the social justice argument um, and then there's a kind of ecological sustainability argument as well. And Mm -hmm. from a social justice lens, farm workers and immigrants are those people that are the backbone of of the food movement, no matter what food movement you're talking about, you know, in the U.S. and in a lot of ways globally um, as farm workers across the world are typically immigrants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for people interested in sustainable food and alternative food, we need to shift to understanding how big a role workers do play in food production, which oftentimes really gets glossed over back to the very beginning of this conversation with this idealized white farmer. Mm-hmm. You know, and then also to appreciate people are doing this work and they they want more from the food system. They want opportunities to own a farm business, to be in control of their own labor, to be producing food that's healthy and sustainable for their families and for other people. You know, so then from like an ecological standpoint, even if you don't care about social justice um, <laughs> and that's not a concern for you, but you really care about, you know, food from an ecological standpoint there's a real question as to who's going to do this work moving forward. And we have an entire population and group of people with experience in sustainable farming Mm -hmm. and alternative farming that are really primed to, I think, lead this movement and be the farmers that we need right now if we want to address climate change, if we want to address vulnerable supply chains, if we want to eat more local. We have people that know how Mm -hmm. to do that everywhere where food is grown, yet they don't have the opportunities to do it. Right. Absolutely. While I'm all for, you know, white beginning farmers that want to get into the dirt and do the work. And I mean, I was one of them, even if I failed, I understand. <laughs> and I want to, you know, right. and, and by no means discourage any of them. But I think the answer also lies in the people that are already doing the work and have been doing the work mm-hmm. their whole life. And so I think mm-hmm. we need to flip our image of who a farmer is and, and look to the farm workers right you know, as in many other things, right? The workers are the ones that know how to do the work. And if we care about growing, you know, the local organic, sustainable alternative, all the different labels we have for it, if we care about growing that movement, you know, looking to workers, especially farm workers is a way to grow it, but they need, they need the institutional support. They need the movement support for that to successfully happen. What kinds of support or opportunities do you think should be created for immigrant farmers? Especially, you know, what recommendations do you have for for white people, like white consumers, farmers and landowners um, to be in more meaningful solidarity with immigrant farmers and other non-white or aspiring farmers? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many different scales of ways that immigrant farmers need and can use support. You know, I think right now I don't have very much hope on the federal level, but that's not to Mm -hmm. say that a lot can't change at the state level. Mm -hmm. In California, I think we've seen the most progressive legislation, the Farmer Equity Act that was signed, it's put into words and put into policy, you know, understanding racial discrimination and, you know, barriers for farmers of color, right? And so Mm -hmm. not just immigrant farmers, but all farmers of color. So passing that kind of legislation that creates actual support networks and particular funding streams for farmers of color, right? To recognize this injustice that's been done over decades, um, right? Not just to Latino and Latinx farmers, but to Black farmers, Asian American farmers, 
um, et cetera. You know, at the state level, I think we can create that kind of support. But also at the state level, we need to be supporting farm workers. So, you know, New York State had a lot of really important legislation passed last summer where finally farm workers have the right to unionize, right? I mean, California did that That's three huge. decades ago, and yet most states still right. haven't even done that basic work. And so only mm-hmm. when farm workers are recognized as skilled workers, workers with unions, workers with better wages, workers that deserve overtime pay and sick leave, can they actually save the money to become farm workers? Um, so we also need to look at how farm workers are treated. We can't just address the immigrant farmers, right, if we want them to get there. And then once they right. become farmers, you know, I think really looking at our institutions, looking at USDA, looking at, say, the organic farming networks, looking at the greenhorn organizations and young farmer organizations. And I think many of them are doing a lot of the reflection that needs to be done and, and actually really thinking critically about race and, and labor and immigration right now. So I think, you know, building on and continuing that reflection and how to reach out to farmers of color and reach out to immigrants and reach out to workers and make them part of those networks where resources are funneled, mm-hmm. right? And I was talking to one, you know, young farmer in my area who, you know, is a certified organic farmer and and I said, "Well, you know, the barrier to organic certification." And she goes, "Well, it's really it's $500, right?" And while she's a farmer that certainly is not making a ton of money, there's a relative difference to what $500 means for someone that's somewhat financially stable and to a farm worker, right? To someone that's making $15,000 a year. So recognizing like that those small things that might not seem like barriers to white farmers are big barriers to immigrant farmers and other farmers of color Mm -hmm. and, and thinking about how we can shift those burdens and, and also making sure that resources are translated. You know, I've been talking to folks over in NOFA, the Northeast Organic Farming Association and you know, they weren't aware that the organic farming standards were not translated. And so they, they said, well, we're going to make that change. And some things are actually really easy, um, right. you know, right. so not right. to overlook the easy things, but make sure that, that resources are there, that cultural awareness is there, that things mm-hmm. are in other languages too. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. Join the book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review wherever you listen.